Hello, this is the Orca Audiobook Podcast. Welcome. Orca is a fabulous adventure story. It is about sailing, but you do not need to sail to enjoy it. A rare thing in this genre. Indeed, I've since met several people who have sold up and gone sailing because of Orca, such as the allure of the writing style and the easygoing narrative John Pennington creates. I met John, Cara, and their delightful one-year-old son, Dean, in the UK back in 2017. We had just bought a 40-year-old catamaran and were attempting the liveaboard life. A few days later, their elegant aluminium boat slid into the marina and immediately a flurry of work exploded on deck. In the time it had taken us to look in our lockers and work out how to tie a knot, the crew of this sleek boat had repainted, repaired and repatriated, taking their one-year-old son on his first transatlantic crossing. It was a long time before I heard about their book. They are a very modest couple after all. I read it and like so many before me, was inspired. Orca is not about hairy men with pipes and huge wooden ships. It's about a pair of unlikely 20-year-olds who end up sailing around the world. Not for any challenge or fame, but for themselves. And that's what precipitates from it. A healthy love of adventure, people, exploration, and of the world. Two years later, I pestered John, demanding he do something about this book. It's just too good. He had introduced me to The Magic of the Swatchways set where I was living, a book that had so inspired him. And after some classics like Sailing Alone Around the World, The Children of Cape Horn, and The Riddle of the Sands, Orca still held its own to me. Make an audiobook, I insisted. You should do it, John replied. We compromised, so in that fateful year of 2020, I cobbled together a small team of willing participants and we started the Orca audiobook. Presently we have four chapters, and as lockdown from the COVID-19 pandemic eases, I hope to complete the book. During this pause, I will release it as a free podcast, chapter by chapter, with hopefully a few interviews along the way. The book is available on Amazon, I will post a link. You can also find that on the Facebook group, Orca, a sailing adventure podcast. Special thanks to John, Cara, Dean, Adam, Graham, and to Claire and Olivia. The book is read by Graham Richards and recorded by Adam Hobden. Production is by myself, Ben Burbank-Green. Music is by Claire and the Reasons from their album KR51. Thank you for listening. Author's note. I feel that two preemptive apologies are in order. The first is for the meandering nature of this narrative. The story wanders not because it's disorganised, but because it is a tale of wandering. When Orca first sailed, we didn't know where we were going, and it wasn't until 20 months later that we found, almost by accident, that we'd gone too far downwind to turn back. The second apology goes to the real-life people who were ensnared in this story and stuffed into the book. Unbeknownst to them, their every action was being recorded by my beer-soaked brain, interpreted in the context of my own personal experience and recorded to best effect for my own personal literary ends. So, while this has been written in the spirit of non-fiction, there is a different side to every story. Names have been changed where appropriate, and, in one instance, a composite character was built from several hometown people. The parents, unfortunately, are unmistakable both in the story and in reality. No amount of disguise could possibly hide them. For this reason, I would like to point out that while our first year of sailing was accomplished mostly in spite of their spectacular efforts, they turned into one of Orca's biggest supporters by the second. The subsequent years of ardent love and unfailing support goes mostly unsung in the text, but I value it tremendously nonetheless. Many thanks. John Pennington, May 2014 Chapter 1 The Betrayal Stung, I Won't Lie my potential father-in-law looked up from the incriminating documentation 
expression carefully neutral. The crisp manila envelope lay discarded on the table, my dad's return address conspicuously, conclusively absent from the upper left. Not even God would save me now, I thought. Then he spoke. Maybe you better tell me a little more about this trip you're taking, alone with my daughter. A cold bead of sweat rolled down my forehead, hanging guiltily from the tip of my nose. Well, your eminence, I, I mean, a uh, pastor, Mr. Pastor, sir, I trailed off. How had it come to this? My mind flashed through the last ten months, each memory unexpectedly vivid. It was very early. Arthur would not be pleased, at first anyway. I had him on speed dial and didn't hesitate to use it. After at least thirty rings I detected a, Hello? 4am wake-up call. Swell's here. The early streets were wet, dripping with fog condensed by a tunnel of overhanging cypress. I coughed. My lungs didn't like the damp cold, having just settled back into a mildly asthmatic state in a cycle that included chronic bronchitis and mild pneumonia. At Arthur's house, I levered him upright into the car. He protested, not having taken his codfish oil supplement or gulped his echinacea-enhanced acai protein shake yet, but I knew if we didn't get to the beach soon, the locals would be there. Once the Surf Mafia A-team arrived, we'd be obliged to depart. We each lacked two of the four decades of life in hometown required for unconditional acceptance, although Arthur had deep family roots and was in a better standing than I. Hometown is a small, exclusive California beach town with a surplus of putting green and a deficit of good surf. The year-round population looks at the seasonal tourist migration like a bowel movement an embarrassing, inconvenient necessity. Hometown's population had been steadily rising, bringing traffic, inflated prices, housing developments, strip malls and water rationing. Long-time residents had become correspondingly intolerant of newcomers and outsiders. Unsurprisingly, we hit traffic. I chafed at the delay and considered using some creative driving tactics to move things along. Traffic this early. We crawled forward. Arthur's head sagged into the window and he lurched back to wakefulness as it tapped the glass. What's happening? he asked blearily. The cause of the congestion came into view. A budget compact rental was half off the road the driver waving at passing cars. Look at this idiot, Arthur snapped. No one was stopping, but I knew my passenger wanted to do one better. I pulled over as he struggled with the reluctant window crank. The tourist driver hurried over. Please, directions to the airport. I'm going to miss my flight. Sure, Arthur smiled helpfully. You've gone about 30 miles too far. Turn around and drive for half an hour. On your right. Can't miss it. The tourist was irritatingly thankful. I felt bad as we pulled away, passing the airport turn-off a moment later. Arthur smiled. Damn tourist. <laughs> He'll miss his flight for sure now. Yeah, he won't be back next year. Keep the crowds down, I agreed dutifully. We drove in uncomfortable silence until the beach. Ours was the first car in the uncharacteristically empty lot, and I took a spot near the ocean. Arthur looked dubious, but I paid him no mind. In an hour, vacant parking spaces would be in very short supply. The surf was poor anyway. We wouldn't linger. We didn't. Before long, Arthur paddled over. I have to leave. Why? Doug just arrived. Oh, right. I sighed exasperated. 
Doug was a short, balding and aggressive 50-year-old surfer. Last spring, he and Arthur had a misunderstanding over a knee-high wave which culminated in a knockout blow to Arthur's cranium. Some meddling tourists had called the police, which resulted in a series of reports, hearings, and since Arthur had been a minor at the time, a restraining order was issued against Doug. Unfortunately, Doug had lived all 50 of his years in hometown and was consequently much higher on the pecking order than Arthur. This effectively reversed the restraining order, requiring Arthur to defer to Doug whenever the 50-foot radius was in danger of violation. Now, Doug wanted to surf at the same spot as Arthur. We would have to leave, of course, so that there would be no legal inconvenience for old-timer Doug. I trudged up the beach to the car, shivering over the frost-crusted sand dunes and grumbling. "'Damn!' I said. Someone had taken a dump on my car. Even worse, loose human faeces was splattered on the hubcaps where, as we all knew, centrifugal effects would fling it in weaponized form into the air. I could look forward to a fine, even coating when I arrived home. I was afraid of that, murmured Arthur. You can't park on this side of the lot until you've been surfing here for at least a decade. You knew that. Oh, come on, it's been ten years, hasn't it? Who's keeping track? Someone was. I was pissed, and maybe that was the final straw. I can't remember. I was twenty-two years old, small, light, and uncomfortably self-conscious. Under a shaggy haircut that was styled to look like it wasn't styled, I'd been told my main flaw was an unfortunate propensity for logical thought, and I tended to agree. It certainly explained the debilitating fashion sense and severe social handicap. Nobody was elected prom king on cold logic. In fact, nobody even got a prom date on cold logic. My friendships failed to flourish, mostly because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Somehow, I was unable to stop as I crisply and succinctly informed the people around me of their inherent irrationality. I'd point out all of their fallacies in impeccable, unarguable logic. They hated it. Climbing the hometown social ladder, I'd finally realised, was beyond me. Moreover, I'd once heard a rumour which claimed that there was a whole world out there. Perhaps I should get out of town escape the vaguely hostile crowds and find something new, something more, something different. Why not now? I'd never really agreed with the concept of procrastination. In fact, I was a staunch, hardline, right-wing extremist anti-crastinator. In school, my classmates stalled and dragged until the final night before an assignment was due, then stayed up all night to finish idiots. I'd stay up the first night of the project, work calmly and efficiently without deadline pressure, finish weeks in advance, and then while away idle days at the beach while taunting my strung out, wrung out and stressed out peers. We both spent the same eight hours at work, but mine yielded weeks of smug lounging, a polished product and better grades. School had been a breeze, so I figured I'd run the rest of my life the same way. Dad, I'm going to buy a boat and sail away. Twelve months to save the money. That's it. I'm gone. Mathematically, it looked deceptively simple and attractively logical. To the surprise of boat manufacturers, fiberglass had proven unexpectedly durable. Over the last 30 years, plastic hulls had accumulated in harbours and boatyards across the country, stubbornly resistant to the forces of neglect. Now, older models were a dime a dozen. I could get a boat for less than most people spent on their cars, and under sail I'd have no fuel expenses, no hotel expenses, and nearly unlimited access to remote shorelines. A few dollars for maintenance... A bag of rice and an old spear gun were all I'd need. The possibilities were unlimited, 
and even the South Pacific wasn't out of reach. Mum stared blankly. Then her face rearranged into the omniscient, condescending parental smile. Dad sighed, shot the do-I-have-to-deal-with-this-now look at Mum. He did, so dutifully intoned. That's great, son. You go get em. He was nonplussed. They were both nonplussed. I asked to live at home for another year to save some money. They argued, Mum prevailed, and I got to stay for a parentally subsidised boarding fee. Mum was a softie, and I loved her for it. I could understand their scepticism. Aside from a brief and impressively catastrophic stint as commander of a tiny bathtub-like skiff during a summer sailing camp a decade earlier, I'd never captained a boat, not that I had one. Neither did I have any money with which to buy this hypothetical ocean-going vessel. To address the latter, I agreed to entombment in a cubicle downtown. Actually, I shared the cubicle with a silent little man who, quite obviously, was only one Dungeons and Dragon defeat from arriving at work with an assault rifle. I cowered and he brooded, eyes oozing discontent at my back from beneath a rake of greasy black bangs for the next eight months. By this time, the economy had slowed and boat prices dropped. Inventories were high and credit was low. The silver lining of the subprime mortgage meltdown. I'd accumulated some cash, so I looked at a few boats. An old Bristol 38, an expensive West Sail 32, an unfinished Pacific Seacraft 37. Each time I found an excuse not to crack the nest egg. Then I looked at a Cape Dory 30, the smallest boat I wanted to consider. Judging from the yacht broker's website, there might be an opening for someone with a small pile of cash. Orca was in a 45-foot slip and had been on sale for years. The broker was selling a dozen other boats for six and seven figures, so presumably he was keen to offload this little fish, taking up his big expensive pond. I called to set up a meeting with a polite and respectable salesman named Bill. At the appointed time, I wormed out of my cubicle into the burning, blinding sunlight and down to the docks. A smartly dressed man slithered up, fresh from the neighbourhood golf course. Um, where's Mr Pennington? You mean my father? Yes, the person I'm supposed to meet who's interested in purchasing a yacht. That's me, John. I want to look at a boat. You? Me? You? He raked me with a disdainful beam, then turned it on my car, which was rusting away happily outside his office, among a herd of BMWs. Bill whipped out his folding, flip-slider, touchscreen, voice-activated Blackberry with a flourish and engaged his Bluetooth headset with a smart double-ear-tap salute. He mumbled something into it, probably telling his secretary to cancel the tow truck, and turned back to me. You, you want to buy a yacht. Someone will be co-signing for the loan, a rich uncle perhaps. Well, no. No loan. Cash. Cash. I see. His eyes lit up. Perhaps I was the last of the Silicon Valley millionaires. He turned aside, fiddled with a knob on his earpiece. Clarice, put on some coffee and don't cancel the croissant order after all. He cleared his throat. Once again, the bright and engaging person with whom I'd spoken on the phone. So what can I interest you in? I have a beautiful McPherson 68. It's got four GPSs, exterior underwater cameras, fully gimbaled satellite dish receiving 700 channels, 
broadband internet, 96-inch plasma flat-screen television, four-way outrigger side-scan forward-looking infrared multi-beam, fish-finding sonar, plus a full wet bar. Price to move at an attractive 2.4 million. His smile was full of hopes, which I dashed. Actually, I'm here for a look at Orca, if you don't mind. Oh, I see. In that case... He pulled out a large jangly keyring, laboriously extricating a small tarnished key. Berth A60. Just slide the key under the door of the office when you're done. Orca was in a shady back corner. She had one mast, bronze ports, a modest bowsprit, and some once-varnished teak trim. I stepped aboard, and she dipped under my weight. A sliding companionway hatch led below from the cockpit. The cabin was arranged like a short hallway with galley, bunks, and head along the edges. A removable table socketed into the floor, but made moving about difficult. The floor was 18 inches across at its widest point. There were no electronics, aside from a low-ran receiver, which, if archaeologists and carbon dating can be trusted, was a system used by ancient navigators in the late 1970s and early 80s. It wasn't love at first sight, but I couldn't find an excuse not to make an offer. She wasn't special, just solid fiberglass construction and 30 years of good maintenance. I proposed half the original asking price, cash. We went to the bank. I bought a $20,000 cashier's cheque and Bill bought me a bottle of cheap champagne and wiped his hands of the whole affair. I called him with several questions the next morning, but he didn't answer and never returned my calls. It was around this time that I experienced the single social triumph of my life. I landed a girlfriend. In fact, a hot rock climber girlfriend. The hometown social establishment staggered, astonished. Kara was nothing but a waif, although she ate two meals for every one of mine. Long and lithe, she was somehow oblivious to her effect on the boys around town, a fact I exploited during my well-planned and impeccably executed campaign to capture her attention. Despite the long odds, at least 14 to 1 by my calculations, I'd succeeded. Kara had been born partially deaf, but had learned to read lips. She was also nearsighted, which created an interesting effect. Without her glasses, she couldn't hear me speak. By the time I found her, she was adorable and completely innocent, shielded from the world by nature and by nurture. She did have one ability that was very impressive. She could walk into a house, sniff the air, and list, in order, the three meals last cooked or eaten there. This feat was invariably followed by a string of polite but persistent questions about leftovers. So I had a new boat and a new girl. Since her father was the pastor of the local church, I couldn't wait to combine the two, preferably out at sea, maybe on a deserted island. Back home, the parents were still unmoved. Ma, I've got a new boat and a new girl. Things are really looking up. I'll just save some more money, get some bits and pieces for the boat, and then we're going to sail away. Three months, not a day more. That's great, honey. It is very important to have dreams. The less money we spent, the sooner we could leave. That was my excuse anyway. Orca's sails were old, yellowed and soft. The staggering cost of replacement precipitated some creative thinking. I did a bit of math, another bad habit, I'm told, and decided we could save a bundle by buying a sewing machine and making our sails from a kit. 
The stitching swerved drunkenly across the seams, so we ran them through again. Thread was cheap. These sails would be extra strong. The reinforced corners in places ten layers thick were like plywood. I used a hammer and nail to pre-poke each hole, then a pair of pliers could coax the needle through. Kara's mother, originally thrilled to find us at work in a familiar field, watched dubiously. Apparently the hammer, nail and pliers technique was not part of the standard seamstress skill set. I started to learn about outfitting an ocean-going boat in general, and more about Orca in particular. We needed power, both propulsion and electricity. I'd been avoiding the engine, but eventually I popped the hood. Tubes and wires snaked, twisting in untraceable whirls of oily machinery. How did it all work? What spare parts should I bring? Clueless, we looked for the solution in a bottle of rum. I half-jokingly, half-drunkenly proposed we could simply row little Orca if the engine failed, and this idea gained favour in inverse proportion to the quantity of rum remaining in the bottle. Who needs to stock spare injectors, impellers, igniters, intakes, inceptors and incinerators? I could only find one ten-foot oar, but we lashed it on deck and toasted the backup engine anyway. I won two used solar panels in an online auction and wired them up. Without refrigeration, radar, email, autopilot, phones or television, they would provide plenty of electricity. We'd circumvented the engine. Problem solved. We still needed some way to automatically steer the boat. Damned if I was going to sit at the helm for months on end. Eventually, a wind-operated self-steering assembly appeared in the classifieds. A steering vane would guide the boat indefinitely, without electrical power, on a course relative to the wind. I threw down the paper and snuck out the back door of the office to meet the seller. He was a sad, droopy old man, a Vietnam vet living on his boat. He'd had a bad month medically and couldn't afford the bills. He was selling off parts of his boat, his home, his dream. He was caught in the machine and I felt bad for him, but he needed the cash and I needed a steering vane. I paid his asking price. We wrestled the ungainly contraption down to the dock and put it together. It was an incomprehensible tangle of scaffold-like framing, cogs, levers, wheels, hinges, pulleys, lines, a sail and a paddle. Over the course of several days, I got it bolted to the back end of the boat. Attached, it looked like an oil derrick powered by a floppy, twisting paddle and a flaccid sail, each protruding at random and variable angles. When I summoned enough nerve to give the thing a tentative poke, Kara and I jumped back in alarm as bits and pieces started swinging, levers clicking and cogs turning. It would oscillate for a few minutes, swish its paddle and wave its sail, then settled back into pregnant stillness until further provocation. We decided to name him Monty and leave him alone for the time being. The last item on the list was a dinghy. We wouldn't be spending much time at docks, so transportation from Orca to the beach was in order. I rolled out a measuring tape. With our limited deck space, we needed an improbably small dinghy just over six feet. We watched the classifieds, online auctions and yard sales for months before we found one. The sailing world is full of strange lore, superstitions and traditions, ranging from the merely implausible to downright cult-like. Most are in the vein of luck offerings, rules an athlete might follow before a big game. What to eat, not bananas how to dispose of liquor, either break on the bow at first launching, pour into the sea at the beginning of a voyage, or otherwise drink deeply and promptly. When to lick the mast, to avert bad fortune, 
like knocking wood. Sailing tradition has long held that boats are female and that each has her own personality. At first I was sceptical, but lately I'd been noticing that Orca did have a personality, quite a good and wholesome one. If she were a dog, she'd be one of those running the Iditarod, pulling the overloaded sled through the Arctic blizzard, doing her duty until the last breath when she would fall over, dead in the traces, rather than quit on us. This dinghy, whom Kara named Coconut, had a less appealing demeanour. She was a spoiled five-year-old, one of those who might kick me in the shins and then run across the nearest busy street just for attention. Then chasing after her, I'd get hit by a bus and it all looked like some horrible accident, but it wouldn't be. Kara had found her, neglected for years, in a San Francisco backyard. The owner stood firm and at an outrageously inflated asking price that happened to coincide exactly with our maximum budget for a mint-conditioned six-foot sailing dinghy. Except, of course, that coconut was an evil pile of festering rot, waiting patiently to murder us all in a fit of jealous rage. Still unwise to her homicidal inclination, we brought coconut home, I spent an inordinate sum of money on mahogany lumber and stainless steel nuts and bolts. Then we refiberglassed much of her hull, replaced the rotten trim, refastened all of the bronze and repainted the hull. There was almost nothing left of the original dinghy except her evil soul. We went down to the marina, stepped the mast, rigged the lines, rudder and sail, loaded a twelve-pack of beer and pushed off. Coconut quickly accelerated to warp speed. Kara whooped. She's so fast. Isn't this great? A gust of wind washed around us, pushing us at an impossible velocity towards an extensive and jagged pile of broken concrete and rusty rebar. I shoved the little tiller left, then right but there was no response. Abandoning the useless steering, I clambered forward on all fours. The boom whipped back and forth overhead in an unlikely series of jibes intended, I now realise, to decapitate me. Upon reaching the bow, I jumped fully clothed into the water, bracing myself back to the bow. I dug my heels into the mud and slowly brought us all to a shuddering halt just inches from certain death. I slogged along the shoreline, pulling the dinghy out to the end of a jetty, hoping, by virtue of its length, to get upwind of a parking lot where we'd left the car. Setting off again, I was delighted to find that the steering now responded perfectly. Feeling celebratory, I ripped open the case of beer and drank six. Aiming generally for the beach, I zigged and zagged, feeling a true seaman at last, Master of the elements, a beer in one hand and the kick of the tiller in the other. As we neared the beach, Kara noticed a bit of shore break had sprung up. Being, I boast, an accomplished surfer, I reckoned we could handle it. As I set up the approach, timing the waves, another untimely gust roared through and we were off again, out of control. With the useless tiller clutched in one hand, I watched in horrified fascination as Coconut headed for the largest section of the shore break at the worst possible time. The implications of this second consecutive double homicide attempt suddenly clicked into place and I realised we had an aggressively hostile dinghy on our hands. We'd be lucky to escape with our lives. Kara, sitting in the bow with one hand on each rail, cursed in an unladylike fashion. Her father would have been devastated. I curled up in the bilge, closing my eyes as we were lifted and began to surf towards the beach. Things were proceeding relatively well until we neared the hard sand, 
when Coconut smartly snapped her tiller hard over and we turned broadside, the rail catching fifty gallons of water. I cried, Abandon ship! While Kara barked, Damn it! Hold your stations, men! But I'd lost my nerve, and I dove over the side in a clatter of empty beer cans, landing hard in two inches of water. As soon as I was out, I realised it was a mistake as Coconut inevitably changed course to run me down. At the last second, I rolled out of the way. The dinghy slashed the sand in a two-foot ditch where I'd been lying dazed just a moment before. We all came to rest as the wave receded. A small group of picnickers watched with mouths agape. I was covered in sand, soaking wet and fully clothed. Beer cans, life jackets and assorted clothing drifted in the surf a hundred yards in either direction of Coconut, who was now high and dry but full of sand and water, sails still set, sheeted and drawing nicely. Kara, in crash position with her head between her knees, was clinging tenaciously to the gunwale. By this time my parents had started to wonder where I was and what I was doing all the time. Questions began in earnest that night when I staggered through the door, bruised and sandy and sopping. How come you're never around? Been working on the boat. That old thing. You're still going on about that? Dad, I told you I was leaving in three months. That was ten weeks ago. We're leaving next week, down the coast. I turned to gaze out the window surveying the view with what I hoped was the unassailable air of a world traveller. I added, with a dramatic, politely regretful sigh, I'm not sure if I'll be back. Mum didn't notice my much-practised traveller's look. John, you can't go. Do you have a life jacket? Won't you need a flashlight to see where you're going? Clearly, she had confused the mighty orca with a boogie board. Yes, of course, Ma, everything's taken care of. Mum looked at Dad, fear in her eyes. He gave her a terse nod, mouth a thin line. I suppose they'd written the sailing idea off as another teenage phase. Your mother's right, son, don't be silly. You can't go to sea in that old thing. That boat is tiny and the ocean is a dangerous place. I know the sea, you know. Dad did too, in a way. He'd been a commercial fisherman in Alaska during his years at university to pay tuition. He also went to sea on government boats to take water samples for his climate change studies. But those big steel ships all had daily operating costs, equivalent to my entire one-year budget, crews of many men, and burned fifty gallons of diesel an hour. Even their life rafts were bigger than Orca. Commercial ships are subject to lofty standards of safety, impractical, even impossible for a small sailboat on a shoestring budget. Dad was gaining momentum now, warming to the subject. Do you have a life raft? Satellite phone? Coast Guard certificates? I was silent. He continued his barrage. How much fuel do you carry? I knew the last boat he'd been on, the MacArthur II, carried 220,000 gallons of fuel and ran twin 800 horsepower GE hybrid electric turbo diesels. I shrugged. It's a sailboat. Wind and solar powered. He shrugged unimpressed. How big is your engine? And how much fuel? Not that it matters, but we have ten gallons of fuel and a twelve horsepower engine. And an oar, I added stubbornly, voice rising. Ha! Huh. See? He glowed triumphantly. Just what I thought. I'd researched big engines, life rafts, and satellite phones, but there was no way we could afford those things. Even selling Orca would scarcely cover the cost. I'd eventually settled for a base model emergency satellite beacon, but that wasn't winning any points with Dad. 
where were all these opinions during the last year I'd spent wrestling with these issues? He'd transitioned directly from disdainful disinterest to a full-blown campaign of criticism. I said that he should buy a boat and outfit it for me if he didn't like the job I'd done. No chance. I don't have that kind of cash. You're not going. We were at an impasse. I was going. He wasn't having any of it. Mum was scared. Several quiet days had passed, and I'd begun to think the argument had blown over. Then, coming into Cara's house after work, I'd found Pastor Johnny at the table, the thick manila envelope spilling its contents across his dog-eared Bible. John? Boy? The pastor was looking at me, questioning. Questing, but not yet accusing. Wondering where my brain was, no doubt. I realised it had been several minutes since he'd asked me to explain myself. God had obviously taught him great patience, which had given me all the rope I needed to hang myself. Now it would look like I'd just used the last four minutes of day's silence to fabricate whatever I said next, no matter how true. I was still reeling. When I first saw the manila envelope, my heart had dropped, mind racing. Had someone snapped steamy pictures of his daughter and I rounding second in his Subaru? Drinking rum in his hot tub? Sneaking the Johnny Walker red label from the top kitchen cabinet? Who would want to blackmail me? Ruin me? Kara's ex-boyfriend's faces had flashed through my mind. Then I'd looked down at the table and realised it was even worse than that. I was shocked, horrified, to find an array of black and white glosses depicting various gruesome shipwrecks. Stapled together carefully were magazine articles detailing recent sailing disasters, illustrations of towering gunmetal waves crashing against craggy shores as big ships were turned into small matchsticks against an iron sky. Tables of statistics, drownings, groundings, founderings. Arrows and notes were added, passages underlined, capsized, pitch-poled, knocked down, stove-in, dismasted. Bullets circled, highlighted. The whole organised onslaught reeked of dad. Sabotage. He couldn't dissuade me, so he was attacking me via Kara, via her father, the pastor. I had to hand it to Dad. It was a brilliant manoeuvre strategically. I was both surprised and outflanked. Pastor Johnny, still superhumanly patient, perused an article. He spun it towards me. Looks like these guys hit a whale off Baja a few months ago sheared off something called a keel and something called a rudder. Unfortunately, they sank. Aren't you heading down that way with my daughter, Skipper? I gulped, weighing options. I didn't suppose I should lie to a pastor. What lie should I tell? Wait a minute, I had nothing to hide. Kara's dad had always been polite, attentive and understanding during our brief encounters in the past. Well, sir, boat design is a series of compromises and there's always some risk in any venture. However, I feel that I've minimised our exposure with the boat we have and gear aboard. I'm familiar with the whale collision in question. I explained what I'd read on hull shapes and construction techniques. I outlined the reasons for choosing Orca, the differences between her and the boat that sank. We talked about the gear aboard, the emergency beacon, rescue times, budget constraints, bilge pumps and emergency flares. An hour later, we'd covered the backs of the photos with sketches, lists and bullets of our own. Pastor Johnny took a deep breath. Well, John boy, I don't know much about boats, but it sounds like you've done your homework. 
We'll just leave the rest up to God, shall we? I thanked him, pleased and surprised. On my way out, he stopped me. By the way, he gestured towards Dad's disaster documentation. Part of my job is counselling, if you ever need to talk. I didn't, and scurried out of the house. I'd been literally saved by the grace of God, or at least by the grace of Pastor Johnny, the closest analogue in hometown. I still didn't know much about sailing. Luckily, at my job, there was a prehistoric old man, at least 70, in the next cubicle. Joseph was a gnarled old thing with a bird's nest up top, a walnut nose and a 37-foot boat down at the marina. He was my first seafaring friend and he was fantastic. With at least one PhD, he was fearsomely intelligent and very accomplished. I'd seen his resume flowing out of the printer, page after page onto the floor, but mostly he played at being a mischievous villain. He was far too valuable to ever be fired, and he knew it, and he made sure everyone knew he knew it. Peering over the top of my cubicle, I could see cargo shorts and an Aloha shirt nestled into the hollow of papers and books. A rubber chicken hung next to a whiteboard, which was packed with symbols I thought I recognised from calculus class, though I'd never seen those long curly Fs layered quite so deeply before. He was scribbling furiously from one legal pad to the next, mumbling a constant stream of shocking but intensely entertaining profanity. In the silent office building, the monologue buzzed in the background, punctuated periodically by shouts. The other office workers, all dressed smartly in business casual, feigned innocent deafness. A particularly strident stream of expletives began to issue from his cube one afternoon, drawing the CEO's attention. Joseph, what's going on over there? Got the bastard! It's integrated. No one's ever done it before. The sounds of a filing cabinet drawer, the tinkling of bottles. The distinctive hiss of a beer bottle uncapping. The CEO was not thrilled to find that his star employee had a case of warm beer hidden in the filing cabinet. But you can't fire someone for treading the cutting edge of mathematics. The marina was walking distance from the office. On Thursday night, race night, I'd crew on Midnight Express. Joseph's job was to stand at the tiller, drink liberally and curse extensively and inventively as things broke, sails tore, lines parted, and each of our opponents darted past to victory and glory, or at least a free round at the pub. Months passed in this agreeable fashion, and I started to get the hang of it. With enough valuable experience, I decided I was ready to tackle the sailing life. I'd learned that single-phase profanity is never enough, that it's neither fun nor effective to curse in anything less than several paragraphs of cunningly structured discourse. I'd learned that a sailor never goes anywhere without a six-pack in his filing cabinet, and that even the most discouraging mishap is nothing but a hilarious story waiting for the nearest pub. With only days until departure, word of a going-away party began to circulate. Gifts appeared on Orca's deck. Several bottles of rum were augmented by a tankard of tequila, three boxes of wine, some books and a bit of cash. There was also an unfortunate abundance of canned chilli, which was puzzling. When the third case appeared, I whipped out my phone. Something was up. Cara, why are we getting so much chilli? Ah, well, remember the can experiment. The great can experiment had happened a few weeks ago when Cara bought one can of every brand and variety available in the grocery store. She sampled and then rated them on a scale of one to ten. 
The idea was to stock the boat with only great-tasting canned food. Max Gold Chili scored the highest a three. I may have mentioned it to some of my friends. It was all making sense now. Kara's reputation for a healthy appetite was legendary, and my quest for culinary efficiency had infamously culminated in a one-meal-per-day rationing schedule. Dirty dishes were minimised, and the cooking process greatly benefited from several key economies of scale. Kara's friends were understandably concerned, envisioning an emaciated frame, sunken cheeks filled with uncooked rice grains, in a struggle to eke out sustenance while trapped in the middle of the Pacific with her food Nazi boyfriend. Just then, my call waiting beeped. Hang on, your father's calling me. Oh, that can't be good. Best of luck. I fumbled for a key to switch callers. Pastor Johnny? John boy, sorry to bother you, but you better get over here. My house, not the church. I beeped back to Kara. I'm in trouble. My palms were sweating as I pulled into the driveway. Kara and I walked through the door together, for better or worse, I hoped. The door swung wide and revealed Dad, reading glasses perched above his grey beard, gesturing wildly. Mum sat behind and to his right, the position of a supporting wife, but looking embarrassed. Pastor Johnny and his wife were exchanging long-suffering sighs as Dad rearranged a selection of photos and photocopied articles in front of them, probably a duplicate set to the ones he'd stuffed in their mailbox. I don't think you appreciate the gravity of the situation, Pastor Johnny. He broke off as we walked in. Ah, here they are, our little sailors. I detected more than a hint of sarcasm. It didn't take us long to engage. In the verbal fencing, I was unprepared and off balance, stuck on defence. Yes, surprised again. Dad continued where he presumably had broken off. Look, Pastor Johnny, anything could cause them to sink. Even the toilet is dangerous on a boat. If it breaks, the head could flood and sink them. Then they'd need the raft, the sat phone and a complete inventory of safety equipment I've compiled for you. Dad glared the challenge at me, and I was ready. Actually, Dad, if it breaks, the toilet is equipped with a specifically designed anti-siphon valve to prevent flooding, as are all intakes below the water line. What if the pipe burst before the what-you-call-it? Unlikely... All hoses before the anti-siphon are double-walled and reinforced. Well, what if it pops off the fitting? Also unlikely. All connections are double-fastened with stainless steel hose clamps. What if it does it anyway? There's a backup valve called a seacock. It's attached directly to the hull. Before any pipes or hoses, close that. What if the valve is broken? Not to worry, there's a softwood plug next to all seacocks. It's pre-sized and tapered to fit the aperture should the valve fail. Now, Dad tried to break in, but I held up a hand. Let me ask you a question. It was time to turn the tables. You commute to work, one hour a day, on a two-lane road. How fast do you drive? 55 miles an hour very safe. I could just imagine the line of angry commuters behind him. What happens if you switch the steering wheel a half inch to the left, just for a second, a moment of inattention, a tyre blowout, even a sneeze? The car goes to the left. He trailed off, his mind racing ahead to the inevitable conclusion. That's right. Across that thin yellow line, into oncoming traffic, where you get into a head-on collision at 55. You're dead. Everyone's dead. Where's your backup? Your backup's backup. Your third and fourth backups. There was a moment of silence. For fantasy, Dad, 
now deceased, along with the carload of victims from across the line. So what do you think is safer? Commuting to work or a sailboat's plumbing? The argument was about to move to the next piece of gear, but Pastor Johnny's conflict resolution training kicked in. Excuse me, gentlemen. I think we can all agree that John Boy has put some thought into this, but that, it, that his dad is still concerned about safety. Is there a compromise we can reach? I propose that we take a pair of survival suits in addition to the satellite emergency beacon. The thick wetsuits had integrated flotation and would give us several days in which to be rescued should Orca sink. More importantly, they are relatively inexpensive and can be crammed into the corner of an irregularly shaped locker. After some cajoling, Dad reluctantly agreed, but I think the thing that really saved our relationship was the fact that he still didn't think we'd get very far. That was fine with me. We'll just go down the coast a bit, stay close to shore, swimming distance. It'll be fine. I'll be careful. Write you from San Diego. I thought if we could just get out of town, we could drop him an email just before the offshore passage to the South Pacific. By the time he replied, it would be too late for him to stop us. The going away party went over well, with just one hitch. Dinner was a few minutes late, and Kara actually collapsed from hunger. I'd always been under the impression it took weeks for a human to literally starve. It only took Kara a few hours. This left me alone to accept well wishes and field criticism. There was a fair helping of both. You're really actually going to do it? Leave hometown, I mean. Arthur was flabbergasted. He lived with his mother and his father, who was a big man in local politics. His grandmother lived up the street, his cousin next door. Two dozen other cousins, aunts, uncles, nephews and nieces lived within a three-block radius. Leaving hometown had never occurred to him before. Yep, I said, I'm going to see the world. But why? Why not? Well... If you leave town, then you won't be here. I assured him I was aware of that. His concern was grounded in the fact that hometown was, unarguably, the best place in the world. The local community might never forgive you for leaving town, seeing it as a challenge to its self-perceived best place status, which must be unanimously supported by everyone in town. Living in town is either a birthright or earned through years of enduring the communal cold shoulder, and worse. It had taken Dad the better part of two decades to atone for the sin of being born out of town, even if it was just a few hundred miles inland. After the first decade around town, Dad had graduated from tourist to outsider. The outright persecution finally gave way to a hostile indifference and after another decade, one of the locals actually made eye contact. Even lately, I had heard about a guy who had just reached this stage. No one bothered to remember his name yet. They just called him New York. After all, he'd just moved from there a scant 18 years ago. Oddly, it was not known whether anyone had ever actually left town before, or, if they had, they'd never come back, and memory of them had probably been purged from municipal memory. For Kara and I, this meant that leaving would have unknown, probably negative, effects on our social standing. Possible demotion to tourist was a big risk. Plus, no one was quite sure what was out there. the mirror, hold your shoulders back, powder your face, lily white, the old-fashioned way, photograph of your father, 
watches proudly from the metal box step right up in his big shoes The book is read by Graham Richards and recorded by Adam Hoplin. Production is by Ben Burbank-Green. Music by Claire and the Reasons. <laughs>